Well, if you listen to Mark's prayer, and I believe you did, you'd probably think that I was going to talk about prison and inmates, but I'm not. Not a lot anyway, um, because there's a specific focus to this series, and uh, back in fall, I think September, Mark actually asked me if I would consider delivering one of these Journeying with Jesus messages. And I was flattered, because it's not really my gig to do this, um, and I didn't, don't want, didn't want to say no, uh, because I like a challenge, and I thought, well, it's not till April, and I've got lots of time to prepare. <laughs> Boy, that went fast. Um, but talking about the road to Emmaus, um, I want to just start with that. And uh, as you know, you've heard about this almost every Tuesday. Um, so, are we in trouble already here? No. We're good. Uh, the title of this is Forsaken, and um, uh, Mark gave me the list. He actually let me pick what text I was going to talk about. And um, Forsaken was the word that was written beside Psalm 22. And for some reason, I was compelled by that. So I chose forsaken. And um, it intersects, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but on the road to Emmaus. And uh, like I say, I know you've heard about this uh, almost every Tuesday, but I want to read part of it. So if you just follow along with me, uh, starting at verse 13. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, uh, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And I'm just skipping ahead to verse 25 here for the sake of time. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So these two are basically, as the passage says, talking about everything that had happened. And apparently this was really big news in their town. Uh, and I imagine that their conversation was a little bit like how we talk about some of the world events that are happening today. Like you can't go into IGA without hearing something about the Ukraine and Russia. And the pandemic has been a really big topic for discussion. And it's common to just hear people abuzz with these subjects. And that's kind of how I think these guys, Cleopas and his friend, were talking. It's like everybody was talking. Um, and uh, 
Jesus walks up into the middle of that conversation and uh, of course they don't recognize him. And when he asks them, what are you talking about? They look at him like he's got two heads and go, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Are you the only one around here that doesn't know what's going on? And when I look at what they're saying, it's not like they're even really grieving over Jesus' death. He was just crucified. They're more concerned about the fact that they didn't think that Jesus was who they expected him to be. And hearing this from them, Jesus kind of speaks harshly to them. He says, basically, you fools. Haven't you been listening? Haven't you been reading? So that sets up the context for Psalm 22 perfectly. And Psalm 22 is actually, I felt that it was an astonishing piece of scripture. And it's packed with meaning and it's packed with symbolism. And there's prophecy in there. And I can't begin to unpack it all because number one, I don't have the time. But number two, I'm not smart enough. But right from the first line, it should be familiar to you. So that's, you might recognize it, it's the depiction of Christ's crucifixion from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And the words that Jesus uttered from the cross before he died, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are also the first words of Psalm 22. Jesus was actually quoting them while he was hanging on the cross. And um, I'm not gonna take the time to read the whole Psalm. We're gonna look at a little bit about it. We're gonna look at it a little bit more and some of the other parts of it a little bit further on in my message. But I'd encourage you to look it up on your phone if you'd like. But we're gonna focus on those first words. And it's important to point out here that these words in Psalms they're actually written by David about a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. And that's amazing because crucifixion wasn't even a thing yet. And uh, there appear to be specific references to the circ circumstances surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. And at first I looked at that fact and I asked myself, how can that be? Well, the explanation of course is that it's a prophetic psalm. And sometimes it's even referred to as the fifth gospel. Um, but the thing is that David was inspired to write this psalm. It's a psalm of lament, and it was likely written in reference to a time of suffering and despair in David's life. And there was a lot of that in David's life. David spent some time in exile, and he spent some time running from King Saul. Uh, do you remember the time that uh, he was running from Saul and Saul was actively trying to kill him. And if you read the account in the Old Testament, it's like he's literally ducking spears. And he was hiding in a cave one time and he was so close to Saul, 
who was pursuing him, that he was actually able to cut off a piece of Saul's garment. And, uh, you know, I, I was looking up some of those passages, and I could not help but be reminded of Vladimir Zelensky. And they're showing pictures of him running all over the Ukraine, or videos. And he's recording his, his uh, video clips in secret locations. And you have to believe that he's number one on Putin's hit list. And I get that feeling that that's the way David was. He was running around trying to avoid Saul. And those must have been scary times when he was alone and forsaken. So yes, I think David did write that song, psalm about himself, but in a way that can only be brought about by divine inspiration. Psalm 22 is also about Jesus. So Jesus quotes an ancient lament in his final moments. Why? That's what I asked myself. Why would he do that? And I think there's at least a couple of reasons why Jesus went back to Psalm 22 in that moment on the cross. The New Testament account of uh, Jesus saying those things is in Matthew 27:46, And uh, it records Jesus saying these words from David's Psalm and this is what it says. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, just like you heard on the cross there. And um, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was hung on the cross at about nine in the morning, so he'd been hanging there for about six hours when he said these words, um, when he said these words in a loud voice. It would not have been easy for him to do this. Crucifixion is actually like suffocating to death, and uh, it would have been very difficult for him to find the breath to say something in a loud voice. So for him to, to say this in a loud voice and call it out so people could hear it was actually quite remarkable. And I asked myself, why did he do that? Because you can see by his words that they're directed at God, God the Father. Well, don't we know that God knows everything about us, even our thoughts? Why didn't Jesus just kind of whisper it? Why shout these words so everyone can hear? Well, the answer is, I think, that he wanted the people to hear those words. They would have recognized them. Um, notice what it says at the beginning of the song, if you're following along. It says, for the choir, for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a Psalm of David. There are 55 Psalms that have a similar inscription at the top. And this is how we know that this Psalm, Psalm 22 was intended for public worship. And um, it's hard for us to relate to because we don't have a lot of laments in our psalms, of, in, in our worship services. Our modern worship songs are more about praise and positivity, and in my opinion, they're um, written with the worshiper at the center. And I'm sure you can think of some examples. Um, there's one that is a favorite of mine, it's You Have Been So Good to Me. 
And a current favorite of mine is um, uh, The Goodness of God. And there's a line in there that said, uh, all my life you have been faithful. And these songs are great. They're fantastic. I love them. But they have the worshiper at the center rather than um, the object of our worship. It's almost as if some of them are subjugating uh, Jesus in their, in their worship. But not so back then. I think the Psalter was filled with songs that were more of lament because that was their experience. Israel was an oppressed people and there was misery and there was suffering and they gave expression to that in their worship and I think Psalm 22 is like that. So um, they could relate to David's words and a lament is appropriate. So when the words were cried out from the cross, there was instant recognition. And I believe it actually triggered a neurological response in many that were gathered there. I don't know if you can relate to that. Has it ever happened to you? Say you go to a concert, uh, your favorite band, and uh, you go there hoping that they're gonna play a certain song, right? And then when that song comes on, just the intro uh, just starts happening, and, and what do you do? It's like, wow, right? And um, um, I, think, I think that's kind of what happened. There, and, and I have an example of this. There's a song, uh, it's a favorite of mine. It's by uh, Jesus Culture, and it's getting a little old already, but I know you know it because we've done it here. And the song starts with a, a guitar riff, electric guitar, and then another electric guitar comes in and it's basically a blues worship song, so it's no secret that I would love it. And, uh, and um, well, I'll just play you the intro. Maybe you can get a feel for what I go through when I... Yeah, even standing here, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I love it. When that riff starts, it just sets off a flood of emotions in me. And uh, it takes me back to a time when I had been arrested. And I don't think that's going to be a surprise to everybody here. I was, I was uh, charged with a white-collar crime, and I pled guilty and uh, I hired a lawyer, not to try to get me off, but I hired a lawyer to try to convince the judge that I was not a threat to society and I could be under house arrest. And it took 14 months for the judge to make up his mind. And uh, those were dark times, that 14 months. And I didn't know if I was going to have to be separated from my family and lose my business and maybe lose my house and... And, and stuff like that. And uh, there was, uh, after the 14 months that elapsed, my wife and I were driving to the courthouse, and um, 
I had my playlist on random, and uh, that song came on. And all of the neurotransmitters in my brain fired up, and I reacted. And it was so strong a reaction that I couldn't even drive. I had to pull over by the side of the road, and I just lost it. And I had to kind of get myself composed again, um, and then drive the rest of the way to the courthouse. And uh, the reaction to the song was so powerful and relevant to the circumstance that I was in that I just had that reaction. And I think that's what Jesus was doing when he spoke those words loudly from the cross. I mean, if he was just speaking to God the Father, he wouldn't have had to muster all his strength while he was suffocating and call those words out. I think he wanted people to hear those words because he knew that they'd be familiar. Just like the intro to the song that triggered me, it would have triggered them as well. And they would have heard that phrase, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, and they would have had instant recognition. And they would have recalled the rest of the words to the psalm as well. Like the ones in... uh, Verses six to eight, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Or in verse 14, but I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat at me and they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So after they were reminded of of the psalm by those first words that Jesus spoke, they would have recalled the rest of those words, like the ones that I just read. And at some point, I think they would have had an aha moment. I mean, how could you recall those words that we just read and not think of Jesus? I think that's what Christ's intention was. He wanted them to realize that he was indeed the Messiah that was prophesied about. That David's psalm pointed to him. And there's a thread going through the Emmaus story that runs right to these words from Jesus on the cross. And in both situations, the people didn't recognize who Jesus really was. On the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend described Jesus as a powerful prophet, a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And they said, we hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. They didn't see him for who he was. And the same was likely true for those present at the crucifixion. They didn't see him for who he was. Jesus chose his words both on the road to Emmaus and while on the cross, to say, I am he, 
I am the Messiah. I think another reason that Jesus quoted David's Psalm 22 from the cross is that it actually expressed the true agony that he was feeling. The physical pain he endured must have been excruciating. If you've ever watched that film, The Passion of the Christ, it portrays the 12 hours up to, up to and including the crucifixion. And it's terrible. To be honest, I couldn't watch it. It was too real. Yet, as real as that portrayal was, it was really nothing compared to how bad the pain must have been. The physical pain of a crucifixion has been well documented by doctors, by evangelists, by theologians, and even movie producers, as you've seen. But there was another agony that I think Christ experienced on that day. Beyond pain, beyond crucifixion, I think that agony was that he was forsaken by his heavenly father. And I've always resisted that thought. To me, it never added up that the God who is spoken of in Lamentations 3, where it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. I could never reconcile that that was the same God that turned his back on his only begotten son. But it's not that simple. Paul described it in the other verse that I have there, and that's why I asked Des to sing that song. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the central message of the gospel, is it not? That God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. Present, past, and future. All of it. All of that sin was placed on Christ that day and it caused the Father to look away. The apostles John and Paul used the word propitiation to describe it. And every kid who has ever darkened a Sunday school room door has memorized John 3.16. Why don't you say it with me? Prove that you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, we know it. So it stands to reason then that at some point the sin of the world was transferred to the body of Christ just like a sacrificial lamb. Jesus became our substitute and God accepted it. That's why Jesus said it is finished. Those words also appear in Psalm 22. At the moment of the cross, at that moment on the cross, something changed in the heavenlies and we were released from the penalty of sin. But that propitiation wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus dearly. He experienced physical death and, acute and an acute sense of loneliness that only comes from being forsaken. This forsakenness can be heard in those words he spoke on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the songs we sang today, 
um, refers to this. And um, I asked Des to prepare this song, and I love these words. Um, but it says, you saw my condition, had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand, I can't comprehend. And we don't have a context for that kind of love. That the Son of God would willingly go to the cross and experience being forsaken of the Father while he bore the sin of the world. I think we need to discover that or rediscover it, whatever the case may be, as we go into the Easter season. And we need to think about Good Friday as much as we think about Easter Sunday, I think. Because Christ's sacrifice costs something, and without a death, you can't have a resurrection. Our sin actually had a consequence, the payment for which was accomplished on that day. Like the song says, we don't have too much of a context for the idea of being forsaken, but I got a little taste of it about 11 years ago. And earlier I spoke about my journey to the courthouse. Well, that didn't go my way. Um, I got myself together on the side of the road and we drove the rest of the way to the courthouse. And about 35 of my friends and family came to, to see what I think we had reasonable hope of that I was gonna go back home after that hearing, but it wasn't to be. The judge said, and it was this quick, he said one sentence, I sentence you to 18 months in a custodial facility. And he turned around and he walked away. And I had uh, a bailiff come and take me by the arm and I was sitting in the prisoner's box and he, uh, he, they, he escorted me past my family and I'll never forget that moment because they just had this look of shock and surprise on their faces. And they don't let you stop and give your wife a hug. They just rush you right out of the courtroom. And I'm like, what the? And I went into this holding area and they took away my watch and my wedding ring and they took away my, sho my, my shoelaces and my belt so I wouldn't hang myself. And uh, I went into the basement of the courthouse where they've got holding cells. And I sat there um, until the rest of the court proceedings were done in the day. And uh, then they took those of us that had been sentenced to um, the Calgary Remand Center. And they put us into this, what essentially was a cage on wheels. And we were shackled and we were handcuffed and uh, driven up to the Remand Center. And uh, replaced in another holding cell when we got there and there was an endless um, protocol of things that they did with us. We had to have medical checks and uh, you know, without getting too graphic, um, let's just say that there were intimate searches that went on and not in a good way. And uh, they gave us our prison uniforms which consisted of orange coveralls and used socks and underwear I think the first pair I had was about size 38 and the elastic in it was new in about 1987. And uh, 
Each stage of this process left me more humiliated and took me farther away from my family. And about six hours after we left the courthouse, they led us up to the cell blocks, and we were traveling like this long orange train through the hallways of the remand, single file and handcuffed. And we stopped at each cell block to let off the new residents that were assigned to that unit. Mine was unit four, and I was the only incoming newbie of the day. And when the unit door buzzed open, there was no welcoming committee. I couldn't even see any guards. What I did see were about 20 inmates in a common area. And what caught my attention immediately was there were two guys screaming at each other at the top of their lungs. I'd walked onto the unit just as a fight had broken out. And I had no idea where to go, no idea what to do. And then I heard tapping on the glass behind me. And there was a dark plexiglass uh, booth and the guard was pointing to me, pointing to cells a couple hundred feet away, like all I saw was his hand and a reflection from his glasses. So I headed up that way and um, I passed cells and there were little windows in the cells and I could see guys looking out at me. And I imagined at the time that they were plotting to kill me. And uh, I still think that because a couple of weeks after I left the remand center, a guy exactly my age was beaten to death on that unit, same unit I was on. And I couldn't help but feel like God was protecting me. But I got to the cell where I was supposed to be, and I knew I was there because the cell buzzed. And that meant I was supposed to push the door open, and I did. And there was a guy in there, his name was Bruce, and he was actually friendly to me. And we had just started to get acquainted, and the announcement came that it was supposed to be lights out. We had to go to, go to our, our bunks. So I climbed up onto the plastic shelf with a yoga mat on the top of it that was supposed to be my bed. And for the very first time in a very long day, it was still. And I lay there, and all of the events of the day and the past 14 months and the time before that flood in on my memory. I have never felt more alone in my life. I felt utterly forsaken. Now my forsakenness was different because I caused it. But Jesus didn't cause his forsakenness. And I'll never forget that night in the remand because it's the only context I have for being forsaken. I can understand why Jesus cried out in agony from the cross because being separated from those you love is life-alteringly painful. And as I said, I deserved it, but Jesus didn't. He became sin who knew no sin. And John, he so loved the world that he gave his only son. What should our response be to that kind of love? My response right then and there in the remand cell was to recommit my life to him. And I know it sounds cliche, but I had to be emptied of myself before he could begin to rebuild me, and that's what happened. I don't know where you all are right now. You're obviously not in jail, but that doesn't mean that you're free.
I think this is a good time to remember what the forsaken one did and what he's done for you and to ask him what your response should be.